This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF. When Justice is Aborted, Biblical Standards for Nonviolent Resistance, Gary North, Dominion Press, Fort Worth, Texas, copyright 1989 by Gary North. You are the salt of the earth. But if that salt hath lost its savor, wherein shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out, and to be trodden under foot of men. Matthew 5.13 For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt hath lost its saltiness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourself, and have peace with one another. Mark 9.49-50 Salt is good. But if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He hath he hath, that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Luke fourteen, thirty-four through thirty-five. What is salt good for? Three things. First, it adds flavor to the food. Second, it serves as a preservative. Both of these uses are blessings. Third. It destroys the productivity of the land, and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning that is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty three. It is therefore a tool of judgment, God's negative sanction. Salting over a city was a strategic It was a strategy of military conquest in the ancient world, and Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the people and slew the people that was therein and beat down the city and sowed it with salt. Judges 9.45 Most people think of the first use of salt. A few may think of the second. Almost no one thinks of the third. That is the problem today. No one wants to think of God's permanent sanctions, not even Christians. The Old Testament required salt in the sacrifice. In every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. Leviticus 2.13 The sacrifices symbolized the burning flesh of the lake of fire. God allowed the sacrifices of animals to serve as symbolic substitutes for men. God's covenant requires salt. All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer unto the Lord have I given thee, and thy sons and thy daughters with thee, by a statute forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord unto thee, and to thy seed with thee. Numbers 18.19 Today, abortionists use a saline salt solution that is injected into the mother's uterus. The solution literally burns the baby to death. The abortionist has selected a means of destroying the innocent that testifies to the abortionist's own eternal future, as well as the mother's. This is Satan's imitation covenant, a covenant of death. Christians are called to be the salt of the earth, flavoring, preserving, and destroying. Salt is covenantal. Christians are required by God to honor the terms of his covenant. They are to act in his name, point two, in terms of his law. Point three, bringing his sanctions in history, blessings and cursings. Point four, extending his kingdom in history while simultaneously salting over Satan's kingdom. Point five.
The trouble is, Christians are unfamiliar with these tasks. They have not even been taught the essentials of covenant theology. They do not understand the comprehensive nature of the gospel. They do not know what it means to be God's salt in history. They barely understand point one of the covenant, the doctrine of God. Transcendence and presence in progressive sanctification. God the creator and judge is wholly transcendent to this world, yet he is always present with his people. If he were not totally transcendent to this world, he would be neither its creator nor its judge. On the other hand, if he were not present with this world, he could not impose, he could not influence its development. He would be bound by, by a self-imposed hands-off policy. The hypothetical God of the 18th century deism, transcendence without presence, was so distant from his creation as to pay no attention to the world and to leave it entirely alone. He just wound the world up like a clock and departed. In contrast, the hypothetical God of pantheism, presence without transcendence, is so much a part of this world that he cannot bring it under judgment. He is incapable of changing it because he is immersed in it. Covenant-breaking man is willing to accept either of these two false gods in preference to the true God of the Bible. What is true of God is analogically true of Christians. This is why we need a biblical definition of God, wholly transcendent, yet personally present. If we were not linked covenantally to a transcendent God, then we would have no legal authority as his designated representatives to call other men to, to account in God's name. On the other hand, if God were not present with us in our various callings and tasks, we could not change the world because it would be neither of the world we would be neither of the world nor in it. But we are in this world, set apart, sanctified as saints, and therefore burdened with the God given responsibility of calling this world to account, and also working from within it to change it. We are not of this world because we are linked to a transcendent God by means of his covenant, and this covenantal bond defines us, not our present geographical and temporal location. At the same time, we also are in the world as his covenantal agents. Jesus made it this clear in his public prayer before God. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in thee. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they might be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou givest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come, and, and, and now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shalt, should, shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through my, thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. John seventeen ten through 19 This process of personal progressive sanctification setting oneself aside more and more for God's service throughout one's lifetime, is each Christian's God-given, God-assigned task. We are required by God to set our, ourselves apart from the sins of this world, step by step, year by year. This is not a process of withdrawal from this world. Jesus 
made this plain. I pray not that thou should takest them out of the world, but that thou should keepest them from the evil. But if we are not to be removed from this world, yet we are also to be set apart from Satan, how can we do this? There's only one way. We must progressively extend the kingdom of God in history through the preaching of the gospel and the subduing of all things to God's glory in terms of his revealed ethical standards. Reconciliation. We are not to be reconciled to this sin-filled world. The gospel, nevertheless, is a message of reconciliation. It obviously has to be a message of reconciling this world to God through the ethical transformation of men and institutions. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. 1 Corinthians 5.18-19 Wherefore in all things it, beho- it behooved him to, meet like, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the, of the people. Hebrews 2.17 And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath been reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in the sight, in his sight. Colossians one, twenty through twenty two. This process of cultural reconciliation inevitably is also a process of covenantal confrontation. Whatever is not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ is to be subdued at the final judgment, surely, but also in history. Since power of rebellion is to be weakened, Christianity provides the cultural standards by which the rebellious world is to be brought under God's dominion. Thus, Christians are not to limit their efforts to personal sanctification. They must also work to extend cultural and institutional sanctification. Like salt, they are to flavor the good, preserve the good, and destroy the evil. How can this be done? The old political slogan is true, you can't beat something with nothing. Christians must therefore offer something better in every area of life. Whether sin has tarnished man's institutions, obviously this means everywhere the healing gospel of salvation is to overcome the effects of sin. The speed of social transformation. This transformation cannot be accomplished overnight. It is the product of the steady extension of God's law through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The healing of man's institutions, like the healing of individuals, is progressive. It takes place over time. It takes place over many generations. As the third commandment says, as God shows his mercy unto thousands of generations of them that love me and keep my commandments, Exodus 20, verse 6. In this sense, Christianity is anti-revolutionary. It preaches the doctrine of regeneration through time. Nevertheless, Christianity also teaches the moral necessity of confrontation and resistance against evil, evil thoughts, evil acts, evil men, and evil institutions. Christianity's long-term earthly goal is to reduce the influence of evil in every area of life. Therefore, its long-term cultural goal is to reduce the influence of public evil in every area of life. The Speed of Social Transformation This transformation cannot be accomplished overnight. It is the product of a steady extension of God's law through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. This healing of man's institutions, like the healing of individuals, is progressive. It takes place over time. It takes place over many generations. 
as the third commandment says, as God shows his mercy unto thousands of generations of them that love me and keep my commandments, Exodus 20, verse 6. In this sense, Christianity is anti-revolutionary. It preaches the doctrine of regeneration through time. Nevertheless, Christianity also teaches the moral necessity of confrontation and resistance against evil, evil thoughts, evil acts, evil men, and evil institutions. Christianity's long-term earthly goal is to reduce the influence of evil in every area of life. Therefore, its long-term cultural goal is to reduce the influence of public evil in every area of life. The more public evil and social environment the Christian lives in, the more revolutionary the personal transformation of conversion is. At the same time, the less the new convert can do to change things, this is analogous to the doctrine of transcendence. The covenantal break at the time of personal conversion to Christ is so great that the convert is left with little that he can do to extend his faith to the institutional world around him. His reaction to his environment must be primarily defensive. This is what Christians face in prison camps or in the national prisons we call communist nations. The less pub publicly evil the social environment, the more points of contact the new convert can have with it, the more places that he can confront it publicly and begin to change it. It is more like the doctrine of presence. The convert is more present in the day-to-day -day operation of his institutional world. He can work to change his social environment's public face precisely because he has not yet departed into more fully self-consistent iniquity. This is what Christians face in the industrial West. Thus we face a peculiar anomaly. In those social environments in which Christianity represents a more revolutionary public break, Christians are forced to be very circumspect and very conservative in order to stay out of jail. They operate under a far more restricted legal and political environment, thus they must go underground in many of their activities, worship, baptisms, evangelism, They know that it will take many generations of personal and ecclesiastical covenantal faithfulness for the leaven of righteousness to transform their culture. In contrast with those social environments in which Christianity represents a less revolutionary public break, Christians are unable to become a more confrontational and more visibly radical. They operate under far more legal, open legal and political environment. Thus, they face new restrictions on conducting the basics of the faith, worship, baptisms, evangelism, and have resources and time remaining for conducting visible challenges to the sin-filled social order. This produces a seemingly strange pair of phenomenon. First, those who are in principle most alienated from their social environment will be least visibly in rebellion against it. The tactics of Christian resistance requires a much lower profile, analogous to the Hebrew midwives. Second, converts who are, closely who are closer culturally to their not equally corrupted social environment, assuming they take seriously the challenge of God's dominion mandate to subdue the earth, Genesis 1.26-28 and 9.1-17, will appear to be far more visibly in rebellion against their society. You would think then that Christians in the United States and the industrial West would be far more visibly confrontational. 
They have greater freedom to confront evil, but this has not been true for over a century. Why? The Paralysis of Pietism The reason why American Christianity seems so docile publicly is not because America is a self-consciously anti-Christian tyranny, but rather because of the world-rejecting effects of traditional American Protestant pietism. This view of life teaches at least three things. One, this world cannot be progressively brought into conformity to God's social standards because A, there is insufficient time to reform the world's institutions, and B, the Holy Spirit will never perform anything like the worldwide transformation of man's hearts. Two, the biblical concept of progressive sanctification is therefore limited to the individual's soul, the family, and the local church. And three, the mark of personal holiness is withdrawal from the cultural, political, and social affairs of this world. This outlook is analogous to the heresy of deism. The deist God is so far removed from the creation that he does not call it to repentance. He does not bring sanctions in history. Similarly, the pietist is so heavenly minded that he is of no earthly good. Because Christians have not had a biblical concept of transcendence, the absolute sovereignty of God, they have adopted an implicitly deistic concept of God's transcendence, and therefore Christian man's covenantal distance from this world. Because the modern Christian's doctrine of God's transcendence is incorrect because it is not grounded in the doctrine of the covenants, so is this his doctrine of God's presence. His view of civilization is closer to pantheism's view than he wants to admit. The defeatist cultural outlook of pietism is also analogous to the heresy of pantheism. The pantheist sees God as so immersed in the creation that he cannot change it. Similarly, the pietist sees the Christian as so dependent on his culture that he cannot expect to change it. He is impotent to make a significant cultural difference. He surrenders history to Satan and his covenantal agents. He abandons earthly hope. I am not exaggerating. Listen to pietist theologian Lehman Strauss on his assessment of the modern world in an article titled, Our Only Hope. We are witnessing in this 20th century the collapse of civilization. It is obvious that we are advancing toward the end of the age. Science can offer no hope for the future blessing and security of humanity, but instead it has produced devastatingly, devastating and deadly results which threaten to lead us toward a new dark age. The frightful uprising among races, the almost unbelievable conquest of communism, and the growing anti-religious philosophy throughout the world all spell out the fact that doom is certain. I can see no bright prospects through the efforts of man for the earth and its inhabitants. Lehman Strauss our Only Hope, Bibliotheca Sacra, Volume 120, April, June, 1963, page 154. This culturally pessimistic outlook is no earthly hope in the church age, of no earthly hope in the church age has dominated American fundamentalism for over a century. American Protestant Christianity for about a century was socially and politically invisible as an independent influence. The abortion issue has now begun to break this stranglehold of eschatological pessimism and social paralysis. There is no question that Christians are at the forefront of this social protest movement. This makes a lot of sense. This makes a lot of Christian leaders nervous. They see where it could lead, namely to a transformation 
of the American evangelical consciousness, from pietism to activism. It could also lead to a shift in eschatology from premillennialism to postmillennialism. But most important, it could, and I believe will, lead to a shift in moral theology from natural law to biblical law. <clears throat> natural law theology and political pluralism. Modern culture says that abortion is morally valid. Anti-abortionist Christians know that it is not. There is no way to reconcile these two positions. There is no halfway house between abortion and birth. Thus, anti-abortionist Christians have begun to call into question the intellectual foundation of the American church's long compromise with paganism, natural law theology. By standing in the doorway of murderers and breaking the civil law of trespassing, they have openly begun to break with the political philosophy of pluralism. The idea that every person's view should have the opportunity of becoming the law of the land. God grants no such political right to abortionists. Why then should Christians acknowledge as valid any political philosophy that says that God does grant such rights to abortionists? Operation Rescue is calling people to the nonviolent barricades. The act of physical interposition is clearly the Christian's first step, probably not a self-conscious step, in the philosophical war against political pluralism. Christian leaders can see where these protests may be headed, even if their followers cannot, to a total confrontation with the civilization of secular humanism. Such a total confrontation requires a consistent, thoroughly developed theology to defend it and implement it. After all, you can't beat something with nothing. There is only one possible choice today, covenant theology. After the protesters have read this book and have accepted its conclusions, they may decide to read my other book, which I am writing at the same time, Political Polytheism, The Myth of Pluralism, Institute for Christian Economics, 1989. This too makes Christian leaders very nervous. These theological and political implications of nonviolent Christian interposition may be why so few Christian leaders have become vocal supporters of Operation Rescue and why those who, who have may, be, may back down when the theological and political implications of Operation Rescue become clear, such as with the publication of this book. It will be interesting to see which is their greater enemy, murdering babies or covenant theology. The Polarizing Issue of Abortion When the anti-abortion movement escalated, it produced a major breach in traditional American fundamentalism and evangelicalism. The world-retreating, confrontation-avoiding pietists resented the appearance of Christian concern regarding a social and legal issue that is inescapably political. It is one thing to send money to a local rescue mission to help sober up drunks. It is something else again to get involved in political action to make a legal and now socially acceptable form of, mur of murder as abortion had been throughout America prior to 1973. This is why Francis Schaeffer wrote The Great Evangelical Disaster. To warn evangelicals of the moral evil of deliberately remaining on the sidelines of life when, so when society faces a literal life and death issue. Abortion has been regarded as a sin throughout the history of the church, but this does not phase the pietists, since they do not know much about church history, and they regard church history as mostly a series of mistakes. Not seeing the progress of history, of history these protests... <clears throat> Excuse me.
excuse me, including church history and not seeing progress even in the church's creeds in history. They're not impressed by appeals to history. The anti-abortion movement has now begun to force the hands of Christians. As C.S. Lewis said, as time rolls on, the moral constraints on men are restricting their mobility of decision-making. The moral issues are getting clearer. Each side of the theological war becomes more consistent with its own viewpoint and therefore has less freedom of decision-making. The confrontation inevitably escalates as time goes on. Hostility to confrontation. There are lots of arguments possibly against the idea of the legitimacy of Christian resistance. Men can deny that Old Testament law or Old Testament examples are morally binding on Christians today. This leaves them with almost no God-revealed authority, authoritative standards on anything outside of family and church matters. Those who are entering the battle against abortion or any other major conflict between humanism and Christianity disarm themselves if they adopt such a view of the Old Testament's irrelevance in New Testament times. Another argument that is nonviolent is that nonviolent resistance is illegitimate unless authorized by a lower magistrate, to which I ask, what about freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and freedom of calling evil men to account? Presbyterian minister Samuel Rutherford in 1644 published his defense of biblical law and the right of resistance to tyrants, Lex Rex. It defended the traditional Calvinist order that in order to justify taking up arms against the state, a lesser magistrate must approve the rebellion. He died in 1661, the year after Charles II, the anti-Puritan king of England, returned to the throne. The government regarded his book as inveighing against monarchy and laying ground for rebellion and ordered every copy burned. Anyone owning a copy was then treated as an enemy of the government. Rutherford lost his pensions from both church and university. He was ordered to confine himself to his house. Then he, he was then summoned to appear before the parliament at Edinburgh to defend himself against the formal charge of high treason. His biographer remarked in 1827, it may be easily imagined that his fate, what his fate would have been had he lived to obey the mandate. But ere the time arrived, he was summoned to a far higher than an earthly tribunal. Now, what if Rutherford had waited until 1660 to publish the manuscript? Would he have ever been morally required to get the formal approval of a lower magistrate? No. Then why should someone who engages in nonviolent bodily interposition in order to help save the life of an unborn child be required to get such permission? What is the difference between writing a treasonous book, as defined by the tyrannical rulers, and standing in a doorway to prevent murder? It is time to quit playing verbal games. What Francis Schaeffer described in The Great Evangelical Disaster should be abandoned. When Christians turn against the Bible, again, turn again to the Bible instead of to the tradition of world-retreating pietism for their answers, they will learn of a God who has called his people to conf confrontation with evil, generation after generation. Sometimes this confrontation is private, with deception as the means. Sometimes it is physical, but nonviolent. And sometimes, as in 1776, in the North American colonies, it is political and military. In this last case, the support of the lower magistrate is required. Question is of timing. This is a tactical question. No man knows the future. At best, he can guess what the response will be to any specific action. When he organizes his fellow men to confront some perceived evil, he may be acting prematurely. Time will tell. But to oppose his decision in the name of biblical law or biblical principle when one's objection is merely tactical is a misuse of the Bible. 
even worse, is to attack him because your objection is essentially personal. For example, because he failed to invite you to sit in his council of elders when he and his associates first formulated their protest plans. There seem to be more of this sort of principled protest going on these days than Christian leaders care to admit. Christians, no doubt, will make many tactical errors. For over half a century, they have had no practical experience in public confrontations against civil injustice. They were told that even to get involved in such matters is suspicious. Politics is dirty, they were told. And because Christians stayed out of politics, politics did indeed remain dirty. Let us not hide our criticisms of another man's tactics behind the language of biblical principle. Such criticisms can be deflated publicly if they are not tied closely to the biblical principle invoked, much to the embarrassment of the critic. If the critic has not done his homework, arguing either biblical law or church history, he is doubly vulnerable. If what we are doing is grounded in biblical principle, or at least not opposed to biblical principle, then let us adhere to the tactic, tactician's prime rule of nonviolent confrontation. The action is the reaction. Let us plan carefully to get the reactions we need that will gain us support for the next stage of our proposed campaign against public evil. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.